Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's special bonus episode, we'll be discussing three Strange Horizons stories, Hunting the Viper King by Catherine Harlan, Regret, Return, Reignite by Audrey R. Hollis, and Truth Plus by Jamie Walls. Hello, and welcome to the Strange Horizons special episode of Be the Serpent, which does not have an episode <laughs> number because we're recording this in October, and it's probably going up sometime in the new year. And chronology is hard. What is linear time? Anyway, uh, I'm Alex, and I'm the Ragnarok one. I'm Freya, and I'm the Orpheus one. I'm Macy, and I'm the Taliesin one. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And since this is a bit of a unique episode, uh, before we jump into that, uh, what are we reading, fellow serpents? I am very much looking forward to listening to this in retrospect because I will have finished my fucking novel. <laughs> yeah. And so I have not been reading very much because I have been attempting to drag my work in progress to a conclusion. Mm. Uh, but I have recently read The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow which is an absolutely gorgeous novel about a girl who discovers she has the ability to find doors and move between worlds. Mm. And it was very different to anything else that I've read recently. And it, the prose is just sparkling and gorgeous. I had a really good time. I have also recently read <laughs> somewhere on the other end of my reading spectrum, a book <laughs> called All Together by Brill Harper, which is a very straightforward erotic triad romance about a girl who moves into a share house with two guys and everybody ends up fucking and falls in love you know Wonderful. so you know there you my alley it happens yeah and i am now in the middle of a non-fiction book which is quite unusual for me and it is definitely macy's fault because i saw it <laughs> on a picture of her tbr pile and went oh that sounds fun and got it out from the library myself this book is called on grand strategy by john lewis gaddis and it's a very selective trip through history looking at certain political and military leaders and the ways in which they thought strategically building on things like machiavelli and augustine and yes. queen elizabeth I. and i've just hit some stuff about uh the new world and the american revolution which is great for someone like me who hasn't really got a lot of historical <laughs> knowledge having never really studied it. I've picked it all up from books. Mm. And this is a very directed and very easy to read, but very chewy and thoughtful look at strategists in history. So mm. that's me. Yeah, and I am also partway through that. I think Freya's a couple of chapters ahead of me. Uh, I have this thing where sometimes I like to go wandering through indie bookshops and looking at what they have on their nonfiction piles, because I really like nonfiction, but not everyone that I know reads it so it's hard to get wrecks so i like just picking things up i think this one was a winner but it's basically uh the book version of a yale class that aims to mm. teach um posh young um lads from martha's vineyard how to strategize interesting yeah, and everyone at yale is from martha's vineyard yeah, okay? and, and also <laughs> some marines apparently also some marines that bit was yeah um this, this guy had gotten told to go teach some like high level naval cadets a strategy course and then lecture them about like the ancient greeks for a while and xerxes it's yeah and, and why you shouldn't build large walls around your cities and things <laughs> anyway yeah it's it's a it's an entertaining book but it's very white and doodly but there's some elizabeth at least so that helps but it's very interesting um and like Freya, I am a book disaster right now, so the only other things I have been reading are Naruto long fix. Um, specifically like Sakura Naruto long fix, because I am in the mood for like overpowering young women, nice, I guess. Nice. So yep, I've been reading fair. one called that's fair, right? One called Hoshigaki, uh, and one called Five Kingdoms for the Dead. That's a good and name. both of them It's a great fic as well. They're they're both kind of overpowered sakura running around being awesome fix. wonderful cool um i have been in the middle of a knitting project which means that i am watching and listening to audiobooks of all the things mm. i am in the middle of listening to the audiobook for gaudy night by dorothy sayers which is a <gasps> classic mystery Yay. novel um 
<laughs> and everybody keeps it. everybody keeps recommending Dorothy Sayers to me, and I have heard many many times that she's wonderful. Wait, you're and I would... starting with Gordy Knight? Yeah, because I was like, this one is the one that is most like a civil campaign, or so I've heard. So I was just like, sure, it, this one. It is true. It is the one. I think it's the one that has like the romance in it. Yeah, yeah. But, so I was like, I'm gonna do this one. I know it was a strange decision to darling make. Darling listeners, um, <laughs> darling listeners, you really need to see Freya's face right I now. I was not looking at. Freya's I'm trying face. to be supportive, but I'm also being kind of judgmental. <laughs> yeah, I jumped right into the good bit. Um, speaking of the yeah, good bit, I've yeah. also been lis- or watching uh, or catching up on the new season of The Good Place. I listened to the Broadway musical Hades Town for the first time, and that was amazing. It's basically a sort of jazzy retelling of the Orpheus myth and also the Hades and Persephone myth. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, I watched Good Omens for the 10th time. I have been watching this very old TV show called James Burke's Connections, which is based on a 1970s book about how historical technological advances sort of all link together into a long chain so why how we got to now i believe is the book right uh no i think the the book is also called connections there is a new version of it called how we got oh to now, good then. to know um i forget who recommended me that book but it was on my wish list on thrift books and i saw it and said i wonder if there's a tv show of this actually um yeah and I might so, be wrong. I might be wrong about that being the same as the other one, but I know that they were like it inspired the other one. Yeah. So it's about how things like how we used the water wheel to get to space flight and stuff like that. It is fascinating. I'm loving it. I watched two seasons of Shit's Creek, which was fantastic, and it keeps getting better as it goes along. Uh, and I watched season six and seven of The Great British Bake Off. Lots and lots of things. So many Very things. Good. So many things. I keep opening Netflix and like sighing and being like, oh, I should catch up on The Good Place. Oh, they all of Avatar is now mm, on Netflix. Yeah. That's dangerous. And then I remember that my book exists and I cry and close Netflix again. One That's day you will be finished with your book. That's true. Yeah. Quite soon, I think. Quite soon. Anyway, shall that we have an episode? episode? Let's have an episode. Let's... So first of all, before we get started, let's talk a little bit about why this episode is special and how it ended up that we got here getting to do this thing. Macy, would you like to tell us a story? So I suppose this begins, would you say that Nebulas or at uh, San Jose Worldcon? Probably the Nebulas before that. Mm, I think so, yeah. Um, Because Ness, who is a good friend of Alex's and is also the managing editor, is that correct, at Strange Horizons? Ness does magic and wizardry, and I'm not exactly sure what V's title is. Ness is Anne Strange Horizon. Um, Yeah. Official official title, Gifted by the Serpents. Uh, There you go. Uh, (laughs) A a single Strange Horizon. (laughs) Yes, yes. An exceedingly strange horizon. Um, But no, uh, V was very supportive of us as a young snake podcast that had only been around at that point for, what, four months? Mm-hmm. five months yep. and was super stoked about the stuff we were doing with fan fiction and was taught we were talking about doing a collaboration and so when the kickstarter came around this year we reached out again and asked if we would want to be one of the stretch goals and so stretch goal we were yeah and, and this is what we be stretch goals now <laughs> now we are stretch stretch snakes <laughs> Don't yep. stretch your snakes. Don't That's stretch bad your snakes. for them. That's no, no, no. So, so what is? What are we doing this episode that is different from our usual episodes? But also, how is it the same? So it's the same because it's going to have dick jokes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's going to have some tent poles. Um, yeah. But it's different because the way that we prepared for this was we all sectioned off a chunk of 10 or 12 of the Strange Horizons most recent stories when we were recording um, and read through them all and each of us picked out a favourite to kind of make the other two read and those are going mm-hmm. to be our tent poles. But we're really talking a little bit about short stories in general, craft, fiction, Strange Horizons trends that we've mm-hmm. noticed and... Yeah, we might be pulling in some references to fic and some references to media, but it's going to be a lot more focused on short fiction than we are usually. Yeah. Yes. And because we like to have a theme for our episodes, uh, we did try to pick some stories that 
as you said, Macy, that we really, really liked, but also ones that did have a common theme that we could really dig into and mm -hmm. talk about. And the three stories that we chose, we decided that the theme that they had in common really was that of desperation. Yes. Which is a delightful emotional theme to talk about. Right. What will humans do when they're desperate? And I particularly love it for short fiction because I think it makes for a really compelling small slice of story, mm. right? When your main character is just absolutely at the end of their tether, they can't do anything but push forward. They're desperate. It's yeah. good emotional stakes. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, that's plot it's stakes too, is the tension. Like, if they don't do this thing, what terrible thing will happen? Mm -hmm. And how is their striving going to affect the outcome? Yes, mm. and it also makes you kind of admire them because they are working hard and fighting hard for the mm -hmm. thing that they want. Yeah, and from a craft perspective, if you're working within the word count constraints of a short story, it does take, uh, I think, quite a lot of talent to be able to set up that uh, amount of emotional stake mm. in a short space and then pay it off in a way that's satisfying. And all these stories do it really well. They do. So shall I start us off? Please do, yes. What's our yes. first tentpole? Our first tentpole is serpently relevant. It's true. It's very it snakely. This short story is Hunting the Viper King by Catherine Harlan. And this is a short story about a young girl who has grown up with her single father in an RV, kind of bouncing from town to town, city to city, kind of on the very edge of being able to afford food and clothes and things like that, because her father has a quest. And that quest is to catch, kill, and render the fat of this Viper King, which is a mythical creature that supposedly can give you all the wisdom and all the knowledge in the world, but only to the first person who eats its fat. And I really adored the kind of forward motion, the drive in this story, right? Um, mm. You really get pulled along. You feel how desperate this kid is to achieve this quest and that she doesn't she doesn't entirely think that her lifestyle is normal, but she still kind of thinks within the constraints of the quest anyway, because it's been mm. her entire life. And yeah, I felt like I had read almost an entire middle grade novel right? by the end of oh, this yeah. story. Or like it could have been, the end of this story could have been the turning point that then led you into the second half of a YA novel. Yeah, There's so much going on. Because the thing that happens at the end of this is, um, spoilers for short stories, friends. <laughs> These are short. You could pause and go read them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, of course, they do catch up to this snake that nobody really was certain was real. And they manage to kill it. And the father goes off to flirt with the woman who led them to it and leaves his daughter rendering down the fat. And so she tries it. And so she gets the knowledge, not him. Is it time for Alex's Fun Facts Mythology Corner? Maybe. I do want to make sure we talk about the story first before we talk about the analogies of the story. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I will just like sit here and vibrate with excitement. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about this story is the complete ambivalence that the story has for most of its length mm. about the truth of the myth. Yes. Because th from this girl's point of view, she has been dragged around and her life has been subsumed into her father's quest for something that she is becoming increasingly convinced may not be a real thing mm -hmm. and the driving force behind it is that her father was told by a fortune teller that he was the one who was destined to catch the the viper king and to taste the fat mm -hmm. and to have the wisdom and the, i think there's a, th a part of the story where she finds out is it part of an epilogue that she when she gets when the she knowledge, gets the knowledge right. the, when she gets the knowledge she part of the knowledge she gets is the knowledge that this fortune teller was basically bullshitting her father yep and made this up. And so there's a beautiful theme in this story of if you are told a lie that then drives you mm. and makes you desperate, you know, you, you are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it doesn't actually matter about the truth of what you were told. Right. Like, is objective truth even real? Which is a fascinating thing for a story that is about discovering absolute knowledge to ask, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of really interesting things to do with the nature of truth and beginnings. But I also love, like, early on, one of the things that happens is that we see the two of them um, cutting pages out of a library book on the myth. 
right? So there's this complete disrespect in some ways for knowledge and receptacles of knowledge and like it's theft it's theft essentially is because like a library book is something that is supposed to be open for everybody to read and take knowledge from but since they steal the pages from it it's essentially theft of knowledge yeah and especially since we see them photocopying things at other points in this book in this story right like why would you cut it out instead of photocopying it it's yeah, it's taking something so that nobody else can have it, which is kind of echoed at the at end the of the end. story. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Yes. It's really well crafted. Yes. It is. Agreed. And the, I like the different the different types of desperation that you see really vividly through this young girl's mm-hmm. perspective that this she's desperate to believe in what her father believes so that her life won't have been dedicated to something that isn't true. Mm-hmm. She's desperate on the other hand to also feel like she's not alone and strange. So yes. she I love the, that part where she tries to work out how many other children like her there might be mm-hmm. also being dragged around on quests. <laughs> like she tries to work it out from first principles statistically, which is just adorable. Yeah. And, you know, again, it, it sounds like the beginning of a world. Like there's this you know silent population of children who are being pulled around while the adults in their lives are so desperate to find this one thing. It's very like supernatural. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This idea that your your parent is has a quest mm-hmm. that drives them and you are just You're at its mercy for the ride. You're at its mercy, yeah. Have I but ever I think, told you have I ever on. told you about my childhood? Because I was a homeschooled kid and we did spend like a full probably six months living in an RV because we were on this giant road trip because okay. my parents wanted to do like a huge genealogy a research trip thing. So I have been the homeschooled kid living in the RV being dragged <laughs> along on a quest. You are one of these children. Alex. Yep, yeah. you, would be, you would be part of this. You yep. would be a friend. <laughs> yes. But I think that we promised that you would be allowed to explain why I am Taliesin. Okay, yes. So at the beginning of the episode, we listed which ones we are and we all mis- listed uh, mythological things because as it turns out, all three of the uh, stories that we picked out have kind of mythological parallels. And uh, this one is paralleling uh, the legend of Taliesin. And this is now Alex's Fun Facts Mythology Corner. This is now Alex's Buckle Fun up. Facts. Yes. Can I tell the whole story on air? If I make it fast. not... Okay, I, I will make it fast. I will make it less than five minutes. Probably oh less gosh. than that. <laughs> Listen, Freya one time got to monologue about Australian bushfires. You will give me this. They weren't even metaphorical bushfires, listeners. I know. It was so, very disappointing to all once of us. A, once upon a time. And then you edited it down. So. Then I edited it down. I'll probably edit We're gonna this down too. We're going to heckling eventually. Eventually. So once <laughs> upon a time, there was a witch goddess called Caridwen. And she had a beautiful daughter who was lovely and kind and perfect. And she had a very ugly, very evil son. And she figured, well, there's not a whole lot that I can do about him being ugly, even with magic. But I might be able to do something about him being evil and stupid. Uh, it won't matter so much if he has all the knowledge in the world. Then that might stop him from being a stupid asshole. Uh, So she decides to brew a potion. And uh, it takes lots and lots of complicating ingredients uh, and a long time to to put it all together. And then when it is uh, ready, it has to brew for a year and a day. And it has to be stirred once every hour and it has to be over a constant low heat. Uh, So she finds, wandering in the woods, a young boy leading a blind man, and she offers them a job. She says, can I hire you to tend to the fire and to stir this cauldron for a year and a day? And they say yes. The little boy's name was Guyon Bach, and the blind man's name was Morda. So for a year and a day, they tend the fire, and once every hour, they stir the pot exactly once. And uh, Caridwin goes about her business. She's very busy being a witch goddess. Towards the end of the year, uh, Morda is very tired, so he falls asleep and leaves Guyon back to stir the pot and tend the fire all by himself. But he feeds the fire too much, too much wood, and it burns really hot and high. And just as the clock ticks over and finishes the last day of the year in a day, uh, the cauldron comes to a boil and splashes out three drops that land on Guyon Bach's fingertips. And he cries out, he says, ow, and he sticks his fingers in his mouth to cool them. And at that moment, 
he receives the Awen, <laughs> which is all the knowledge of the world, all the wisdom of the world, and especially poetic inspiration. And he sees in this flash that the three drops that he re- he received was the entirety of the potion. And what is left in the pot is now poison and it will uh, crack and spill all over the floor. And Caridwin is going to come back and be super fucking pissed. <laughs> uh, so he runs and Caridwin comes back and is super fucking pissed. And she follows after him. Uh, and with his Awen, he sees all the secrets of the world and he sees how to transform himself. They turn in a, into a bunch of different animals uh, while she chases him. And eventually she, sw- she swallows him and he becomes a child in her stomach uh, until she and she curses and uh, swears to destroy him as soon as he's born. But when he is born, she can't do it. So she puts him in a basket and throws him into the ocean where he's saved by a fisherman. Uh, who, upon seeing this beautiful, radiant child, says, oh, what a radiant brow, except he says it in Welsh, which is, ah, tal iesen. Uh, and that becomes his name, and he becomes the greatest bard in all the world. In fact, he becomes King Arthur's court bard. Uh, and so uh, if you have read the story that we're talking about, <clears throat> Hunting the Viper King, you can see the parallels between the child uh, being left to tend to the fire and stir the cauldron and then accidentally receiving the great wisdom. I mean, one of the things I did really love about this story, though, was that it wasn't an accident, was that she made a decision. She mm. made a selfish decision, which... If this had been a story that was concerned about morals, which it really wasn't, which I found delightful, the father would have been doing this quest for his daughter. He would have been looking for the knowledge for his daughter, but he wasn't. And she just took it. Mm, And I think that the story doesn't give you much indication that that is, like, she doesn't have that as a plan in the narration. You just see her frustration and her loneliness and her love for her father and her willingness to go along with this and her you know wavering belief as to whether it's a real thing and then the decision that she makes to taste the fat and to get the knowledge for herself is made somewhere but you never actually see the decision being made you only see the action she seems like or she strikes me as a fairly young girl and i remember being that age you sort of would just do things on impulse without really thinking about it Mm mm-hmm and I think it, it comes across as this kind of act of revenge, mm. really, like for what her father put her through. Not, for what her father has put her through, she has not actually thought this is what I will do with the knowledge once I have it. And I think you have to have that because because it is a deliberate act. So the versions of the Taliesin myth, and there's another version called the Salmon of Knowledge, where, again, <laughs> it is the salmon is given to the servant who has to cook it for the person who caught it. And again, fat splatters, he licks his thumb, you know, he gets the knowledge accidentally. It's not the person who was originally having it. And so if you're changing the story to make it a deliberate theft of knowledge from somebody else, I'm not quite sure if it would have been a different sort of story if she had had a clear idea of what she wanted to do with the knowledge once she had it. But it did come across as this impulsive, this is this thing you have put me through. Mm. I am take- I have gone through all of this just as much as you have. I deserve this just as much as you did. I think I really loved that it was that way. You know? Mm, me too. Yeah. I think it was really powerful and it felt really very real. But I do think that I didn't know any of this mythological background at all when I was reading it. And it's interesting. It didn't need it. Um, no, absolutely. It's super cool to know about it. Yep. Yep. Shall we move on to the second tentpole? Yes. All right. So the second tentpole, this is a story called Regret, Return, Reignite by Audrey R. Hollis. And the reason I was Orpheus in the Which Ones Are We is because this is a very clear, again, take on a particular myth. And in this case, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. And this is a story about a world in which going to the land of the dead and bringing back your loved one is something that is just done. It's not done lightly. It's not often done, but it's a thing that can be done and people know about it. So this is a story about Lyra, whose wife Justine dies, and Lyra goes to the underworld and does what you've got to do to get back your loved one, which is to play a song. 
And the whole point is that you have to demonstrate your knowledge and your commitment. Mm -hmm. And so what this story says is you can bring back the parts of the person that you know. And you have to demonstrate your knowledge. So she sings a song about all the parts of Justine. She says, I know her. There is nothing unknown between us. I can do this. Mm -hmm. But what she ends up bringing back is a semi-transparent version of Justine who you can see her entrails. (laughs) Not all of her is quite there. And she cannot speak anymore. She just opens her mouth and music comes out. It's so creepy. It's very creepy. It's creepy, but the way it's written has this lovely deadpan humor. And the fact that it is presented as something that just happens in the world, (laughs) you get to see how people around them react to it. And that Justine has to go back to work as a university lecturer. And there's a quote saying like, you can't just stand there and be transparent and not address it. (laughs) (laughs) And... And it ends up with them deciding that they will go back to the underworld and try to recover the lost parts of Justine because she's becoming increasingly frustrated by the fact that she doesn't feel whole. And, you know, without some certain memories and the parts of her that were unknown to Lyra, Mm -hmm. is she still the person that she was? So it's got a lot to do with whether you can fully know another person and the things that you will do to get somebody else back if you have lost them. But I think it's just, it's a really neatly crafted little story. I, I really loved it. It's also one of the things that I found deeply charming, but also hilarious was how fucking lesbian it was to discover that your girlfriend is dying and be like, right, marry me right now. I'm going to learn everything about me, about you. Give me some <laughs> flashcards. We're going to get this shit done. Supernatural U-Haul, here we come. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. She's like, it will, the most it, will make people thing. T- it will make people take us more seriously in the land of the dead if we have a marriage certificate. <laughs> uh, because like, it could have been a story about people who, you know, we've been married for 20 years and they were so intertwined, but it's not. It's a no. story about these like... Two idiot, overachieving girlfriends who've been, what, like a few years together, just like, we're going to do it. They're like so type A that they like spreadsheet death into submission. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Macy, Macy, you love a creepy lesbian story. I do. I feel like there's nothing wrong with a creepy lesbian. Of course. Of course there isn't. (laughs) Nobody's saying there's anything wrong with creepy lesbians. I feel like I feel like the entire Strange Horizons list. We could have pulled out like ten or so creepy lesbian mm, stories fair. and that's done a, a very done a very good episode on them. Well, Strange Horizons is doing the work for creepy lesbian representation. There we go. It's <laughs> yes, very it important. Is. But I I super loved the use of music here in an unnerving way, like the use of music as a substitute for voice and how it kind of silences you right because so often Mm. we see music only as something beautiful but in this case it's something horrifying yeah yeah and i found that really cool you would you're also into (laughs) creepy lesbians and music like this has everything (laughs) this has all the things that macy likes And the and the two types of desperation in this are first of all the desperation obviously to mm. return someone that you love from the dead, but then it turns into the growing desperation of Justine to get other parts of herself back so she can be the person that she mm-hmm. vaguely remembers but not quite remembers being. And that's a very unsettling thought. It's a very much like a disability narrative, I feel. Mm. Right. Yeah, I could see that. It's it's certainly like resonating. Um like uh, coming back after a stroke or uh, something along those lines, right? Coming to terms with who you are now and the pieces of you which work and the pieces of you which don't. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I liked, there's a line that said, um, Lyra didn't know if Justine would still be wearing her ring if she had a choice. Justine's own ring had been on one of her missing fingers. Ha! And it's this thing about if somebody has changed so dramatically, obviously Lyra is convinced that she is absolutely wholly still the same person. This is my wife. This is the person that I love. And Justine is the one who has to say, well, actually, I am a bit different now. And I think we have to address the fact that I'm a bit different. Right. I'm still a whole person, but I'm not quite the whole person that I was. Yeah. Right. Because the whole point is that she is the whole of what Lyra knows of her. Um, And in addition to uh, having these parallels with Orpheus, it also... 
and explicitly referencing Orpheus, um, it's also referencing Prometheus. There's the line that this game is rigged and they have this thing that they've always said to each other, if the game is rigged, play a different game. And mm. so it might not be about bringing Justine back. It might be about bringing as much knowledge back as possible uh, and telling the world. Mm. Yes. That's what, yes. But yes, she, she gives uh, these lectures at the university. Everybody wants to learn from her now because she is one of the few people who has gone and come back. They want mm-hmm. to hear about it. Right. So it's very much the bringing back the knowledge. But this is also not the only um, Orpheus story that I read, at least. I don't know if the two of you went and read the one I recommended. Um, the other I did, one? I didn't have a chance to, but will you tell us no, all about neither. it? Okay, sure. So uh, there was another story that I read uh, amongst this crop, which was Many-Hearted Dog and Heron Who Stepped Past Time, uh, which is about a time-traveling and a non-time-traveling pair of assassins who are in love who take a mission to have their client die and then bring her back by battling. Are they lesbians, basically? They are not. They are gay. I believe one of them might be non-binary, actually, but they are queer. Um, And so the time-traveling one has to battle with the goddess of his kind of time-traveling troop Mm. to win back the soul of their client who had to die briefly and then get brought back. Um, And so that was super fun. Um, And it was very uh, like samurai narrative Mm. style. Cool. Very cool. But I know Alex has an Orpheus thing, so you might enjoy that later. I do have an Orpheus thing. (laughs) I very very much have an Orpheus thing. See how hardcore I have been enjoying Mm. Hadestown. That's Um, fair. Everybody has been telling me to listen to this for like a year and a half now. And yes, we have. Like the okay. more I have this thing where if many, many people tell me to listen to a thing or watch a movie or read a book, I start like digging in my heels and going like, no, I'm going to be a hipster about this and not I think everyone to it. has that thing. Yeah. Like, well, for some I, reason, above a certain point, you're just like, no. No, no, you're pushing me too hard on this. No. Yeah. Um, and so I got that with Hades Town, and finally I got around to listening to it. And I'm like, oh, you're right. I should have listened to this. This is fantastic. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. But now, your tent pole, Alex. Oh, yes, my tent pole. So the reason that I'm the Ragnarok one is because this story is about the end of the world. Uh, it is yep. Truth Plus by Jamie Walls. And it is about the, it's set in the modern day on regular old earth, except that there is a giant meteor heading straight towards us. And we're all going to be dead. And there's nothing we can do about it. And there's nothing we can do about it. And there's nothing we can do about it. But then one person, a, what was his job title? Like public relations coordinator or something something like that? Yeah. Decides to do something about it, except that he can't do anything because all he's good at is writing speeches, right? (laughs) He doesn't have the scientific knowledge and his ex-girlfriend, who does have the scientific knowledge, says... There's nothing we can do about it. I loved her so much. Yes. I, oh my god, I she loved her. She was such her. a good character. She was great. They kept being like, but but we can save it, right? And she's like, here are the statistics. I'm not doing anything with these statistics. I'm the, We're the, all st- fucked. The statistics are so bad, in fact, that I'm going to fuck off and like have as much sex as I want and do all the drugs that I want and yeah. just like spend the last couple days of my life having a good time because we're dead. Uh, <laughs> so she's the, like, sure, you can lie about my statistics if you feel like it. I honestly don't give a fuck anymore. It's not going to work, right? Uh, So what our main character does is that he gets some people together and they make a CGI movie and they fake having the launch of an arc, which is this uh, this spaceship that they're trying to, to build to save some of humanity, to get some of them off the planet so that they the species has a chance of survival. So they fake instead of faking the moon landing, they fake the launch. (laughs) so that at least humanity has the opportunity to perish in flames and torment with the hope that at least some of us got out and it is so heartbreaking and weirdly uplifting i'm so mad at the story oh my god it's so (laughs) fucking good i know you read it and it was the great thing about it is it's just kind of upbeat Yeah. yeah 
Like, it's got some, obviously, some moments of strong emotion and despair and desperation, but at the same time, it's just some dude attempting to do his speechwriting job and having to call people who don't want to cooperate with him and, you know, the everyday life that's ticking on. I think the genius of it is that it is paced like an everyday life story. Yeah. You don't actually get a sense of acceleration towards disaster because that's not what's going to happen. It's just going to be everyday life, everyday life, everyday life, and, and then we're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> and the pacing of the story in quite a short space manages to mimic that very, very well. Yeah. And I think that maybe what we're seeing here is that the desperation is in the girlfriend, not in him. Yes, I would agree because he, from day one is like I'm gonna do something about this I don't know yet what I'm gonna do about this but I'm gonna find something to do and then I'm gonna do the shit out of it just Mm -hmm. to feel like I have done as much as I could and if that thing is lying to the entirety of humanity so that they have a moment of hope in this darkest timeline where everyone's about to die then that's what I'm gonna do and I think that that's a worthwhile thing I experienced a really weird thing reading this story where even though I had the perspective from behind the curtain, right? Like I could Mm. see what was going on in the backstage. I still desperately wanted to believe that somehow he had actually gotten an arc together. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like it's just fiction about fiction. And I still wanted to believe that the, that it was true, you know, like I wanted to believe that they got out. That's because he the the character is drawing on that most desperate mm. desire of all of us that that there would not just be a senseless end. Yeah, that something right. will continue, and it's such a strong emotion that that's why his plan works. Mm-hmm. Yep, because they are everybody is so desperate to find something to hang their hope and meaning onto. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's it's true. It does. It transmits itself all the way through the fourth wall. Yeah, and you find yourself <laughs> with exactly that same hope. <laughs> It is peak chant bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. And it's also hope punk as fuck. But like at the very, very core of this is this thing that I have this like motif that I have running through my books, which is it doesn't matter if it happened that way in real life. As long as the story is good, as long as it's truer than truth, it doesn't matter whether or not humanity actually got out. It ma- matters the effect that it had on everyone else in those last moments, moments before they were completely annihilated. Yeah, and it's it's the story of someone thinking, how can I do the most good? Like, it's a very Hufflepuff kind yeah. of yeah. Uh, approach. It's saying, how can I do the most good in the hour that all of humanity has left? Yep. I can't actually perpetuate the species. I can't actually get us off this rock and into space. But I can increase the net amount of happiness and hope in the world by yep. this small amount through this small action. Yeah. Which yeah. you also saw, like... Just in general, you having these friendly neighborhood drug dealers who are just giving away heroin. Like, I'll help. You've never yeah. done this before. I can help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> Here, have a little happiness. Um, yeah, they just want to make people to have as much happiness as they can. And that is a driving human urge. Yeah, it's the non-fic book that I will get you to read at some point, uh, both of you, which is the uh, okay. Paradise, Paradise Built in Hell. Yeah. You know exactly which one I'm telling you to read again. Oh, yes. Yep. I always yeah, I, look, I'm, I'm very open to non-fiction. It just keeps getting overtaken by all of the other fiction. That's a mood. Yeah, that's a and mood. podcast homework. That's also and a mood. podcast homework. Shall we talk a little bit about craft and desperation? Yes. Let's. Yes. Yes. I wanted to talk about... The fact that desperation, as we discussed at the beginning, isn't a great emotional driver Mm -hmm. for a story. And it's related to, you'll hear this very common piece of writing advice when Mm -hmm. you're talking about how do you create story? How do you create conflict? They say, make sure that your protagonist wants something desperately. And from the very beginning, there should be something that they want. And the thing that they want can change throughout the story. The thing that they want might turn out to not be the thing that they need, which is a very common way of changing things around in the last act. Mm-hmm. But it means that you have a driving force from the word go. And obviously right. you want everybody else in your story to also want something. Uh, and I think all of these stories leaned very hard into that very good effect. Yeah, and I think that it's telling that these are the ones that really jumped out to us. I mean, I think that all of us had a few other runners-up that we also loved, but Mm -hmm. um, the ones that really stuck with us were the ones where there was this burning need of some kind. Yeah. And Alex, yours is interesting because it really isn't the protagonist who has that burning need. It's the whole of mankind around him. Yeah. I mean, he still has a 
a burning thing happening, but it's this burning intent. Like, he's going to find some way to make this better. Mm. Mm. So how do you guys use that once a thing in your own writing? Well, as we all know, I have a hard time with this because I keep writing these (laughs) sad crying boy protagonists um, and who just sort of want to sit around and be exquisitely beautiful and sort of mope for a while. And then I have to get the crowbar and like pry them out of the front door and be like, go find some plot. Go live a life. (laughs) It's challenging. (laughs) So when I've found this working well in short fiction, because I think you have to be more concise in short yeah, fiction right? and discipline. you have to be much cleaner with it yeah. um i've one one of the short pieces that i've found some success with is uh the um what's it a feather witch wishes to go stab her girlfriend because mm. girlfriend nearly got the village killed mm. that's a pretty like obvious and clean and straightforward desire um it, you want something that can be easily understood maybe yeah or maybe not I don't know. I think it's hard to put your finger on how to do this. Um, But for me, at least, I am very, like, method writer, if that's even a thing. Like, I have to kind of feel like I'm on the inside of the character. I have to Mm. feel like I am the character to really get at the heart of this. Um, And so that's hard to convey what that, how to do that, right? Mm. And in short fiction, you usually not always, but usually only have space to explore one person in depth. Mm -hmm. And I've had the story that I sold to Analog, the point of view character had two conflicting Mm. things that they wanted desperately. So number one, they wanted to, it was a sentient AI of a spaceship that wanted to get fixed and get away from the place where it had been stuck for ages. Uh, But in conflict with that was, it wanted to be loyal to the woman who had built it, but the woman who had built it was now the reason that they were stuck. <laughs> and so if you can start from a place of conflicting things that you want and then introduce something into the story that allows one to be uh, furthered or reached at the cost of the other, then you've got an interesting play that you can make quite a good emotional hook with. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely not the only way to make a compelling story i mean you think of the ones who walk away from omelas right and the desperation comes from the other side of the fourth wall there is no desperation per se inside the story it's just a description but we feel that because we imagine ourselves in that situation i think that's super interesting but maybe you have to be le guin to pull that off (laughs) (laughs) there are some short stories and i think there were some that we read in us range horizon threesing that were less about here is a person and more here is a vignette about a situation. Isn't this interesting? Mm. But the ones, you're right, you have to come up with something that's actually quite compelling for that to work as a short story. The one that it's reminding me of is uh, called Road, A Fairy Tale, which was a story Mm. in uh, in the set of stories that we read about a road that accidentally gains sentience and is really polluted and upset about this fact and all of the traffic is honking and giving it a headache. And it was deeply charming. But yeah, it isn't like a character that's desperate per se. Yeah. And if you've got more space, then wanting something desperately is a very good way to do character Mm -hmm. dynamics. Like me, I'm about to leap back into the arms of romance writing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a break from my fantasy novel. And it's a very easy setup for a good romance is to have your two love interest characters have directly conflicting driving right. motivations. Mm-hmm. They both want something desperately, but it's the same job. Or this person's company you know, wants to do this thing for his company, but it requires knocking down somebody else's you know, native park or something Ooh, like that. So yeah. if you can set up two people yeah. with direct conflict, then you have something that will pull you immediately through the story. Mm-hmm. And it means you have an external obstacle for them to overcome when it comes to finding true love. So the more people you can cram in who want different things, the easier it is to generate a plot. And that's why I think when you're doing it in a short story, you either have to have conflict within an individual or you have to have something that's very easily identifiable as this is the thing this person wants, let's go. <laughs> and you just drive them into the short story and then 5,000 words later, you sort of emerge going, whew, well, that was a good ride. And I think this is a fascinating <laughs> thing. There are so many ways of doing a short story as well. And different people will respond to different 
types of engine, right? There's so many different story engines you can use. I'm reminded of, um, I think it's Nino Cipri's um, Super Little Dead Girls is a short story I'm thinking of, which is just a meme, right? It's a quiz that you take to discover which Super Little Dead Girl you are. And it's delightful <laughs> and charming, but like, is it a story? I mean, it absolutely is. But for me describing it to you as a meme, it doesn't sound like it would be, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was also thinking about um, how different the engine of something you might read in Strange Horizons is from a 6,000 word fanfic. Yes. So I was thinking about this earlier and I was thinking, well, what is fanfic fueled by mm. uh and since this is a, a strange horizon special if we have a bunch of new listeners uh who are uh really into strange horizons but have not listened to us before <laughs> uh we do talk a lot about fanfic and its role in the literary conversation and i think that fanfic is mostly fueled by character for the most part except for your like big old epics like the ones that macy reads i think that um it's fueled by uh, this is a tautology. Fan fiction is fueled by interaction with canon. Okay, sure. And I think that a lot of the things that we respond to and decide to interact with are the characters, right? We fall in love mm -hmm. with the characters. We fall in hate with the characters. We want to save the characters. But it is essentially a answer or a response to canon. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Um, I think that makes sense I think to it me. can also be a response to the world of the canon. Like, it's often, mm. a, it's often a response yep. to what we see as potential or hidden pockets that are unexplored, especially in speculative canons. It doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be about the individual characters. I agree that it usually is. But yes. fan fiction is, again, saying here is something that exists, here is a pocket of it, or something that could be done with it that wasn't done and here's me showing you that interesting pocket. I, I think that specifically with very short fan fiction, um, so much of what's conveyed is like an iceberg, right? It's, yeah. it's reflecting um, an interaction with a much larger body of work. And one of my favorites, uh, 1400 word fanfics. I can count that low. Uh, <laughs> Surely that's just is, like blinking for you, Macy. Yes, oh, it is. And I bookmarked it, which tells you something. Mm. Amazing. Um, it's called Remains uh, by Basingstoke, and it is a Rogue One story about Chirrut and Baze, and it's about basically the impact of the war on Jeddah. Okay. And it's beautiful and painful and it just kind of pulls back the curtain on one particular aspect of canon that isn't really dug into which is the impact of the events of rogue one on the people who were just kind of living in this city that got bombed into nothing yeah mm. um and i think that's something that fanfic can do that short fiction can't because what is it pulling back the veil from what is the the bigger work that it's referencing yeah, yeah. and i think because when you read something like that, it doesn't exist floating in a vacuum of nothing. Exactly. It exists attached to something. It's like, you know, you, there's this house that someone has introduced you to. You've walked through some of the rooms. Everything is quite nice. And then someone says, you know what? There is some really interesting architectural features above this door. Let's go and just look at this. Let mm. me explain to you how this door is interesting. Here's some really nice curlicue things. Isn't that nice? And you go, yes, it is. Because you're aware of it as part of a larger house. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not just like someone has handed you the top of a door and been like, isn't this great? And you're like, it's a fucking door. Right. That's why I'm so yeah. impressed by stuff like the the Viper King or like, um, I think it was, was it Marissa Lingen's um, Ocean story? Yes. Um, yes. That was one of mine. Yes. What's uh, it? Wrap me in the ocean wide. Uh, uh, yes. With the depth of world and context that can be conveyed in such a short package compared mm. to what we're used to over in our fanfic land where we have so much luxurious space yeah, yeah. and i often see people talk about short stories not necessarily even positively saying this felt like it was an extract from something bigger in a way that they think, well, why didn't they just write the bigger thing? Or this was unsatisfying because I wanted mm. to see the rest of it. Whereas that's one of my favorite things about short stories that feel like they are a slice from a house that you can't quite see, 
but you have been given yeah. enough to get a sense for what it might look like, what the shape might be, what the other rooms might look like. And I think I keep banging on about Margot Lanigan, who's an Australian short story yes. writer, but she does this better than almost any other writer I know. All of her stories take place in very different worlds and you get this sense of the size of them, even though mm -hmm. all you're focusing on is maybe a, a few people or a small family or one person's quest because she has this gift for putting in, dropping details in and mm. capturing unusual voice. Yes. And it makes you really feel like you are being given a glimpse of something huge. And that's one of my favorite things about short stories when they do mm -hmm. it well. Was that Singing My Sister Down was the one you had us read, right? Yes. By Margot Lanigan? Yes, that was that amazing. Was so good. It is great. Yeah. And all of her collections of short stories are fantastic in their own way. I really recommend them. So we had, what, like 30 <laughs> stories yes. that we reviewed? Mm -hmm. It was a lot. Um, and we broke it into 10 each. Um, do we want to give a shout out to a couple of the others that we really enjoyed? Sure. Also, here's a fun game. Uh, let's see if we can imagine a parallel universe <laughs> where this episode was about different stories. What might the theme have been? Mm. Can you put together a set of three mm. or a set of two that was missing a third? <laughs> yes. Uh, who wants to start? Well, I think you said you already discussed that we had two Orpheus stories. Yes. Mm -hmm. I could probably make a third about resurrection. Because oh. one of the other stories that I really loved out of my set was Notes on a Resurrection by okay. Natalia Theodorodou, which is a story about a fairly simple concept. It's about somebody who comes back to life um, in a town after a lot of the young people have been killed and what happens afterwards. And my mm. favorite thing about this story was the structure in that it is lots of very short vignettes from the point of view of different people. So this person's friend, their parents, their sister, somebody else, somebody whose son did not come back to life. And it builds up this slightly unsettling story about this very common sort of fantasy horror theme of someone has come back, but they've come back wrong. But they came back wrong. They yeah. came back not quite right. And where Regret re Return Reignite played with that and made it straightforward and actually kind of charming, and mm -hmm. although part of this part of the story's concept, but not actually creepy in the horror sense, right? This story began to feel more like traditional horror, mm -hmm. and it was about what do you do when the t and it's about small, close knit communities and how mm -hmm. something going slightly off can then cause ripple effects. I thought that was a great story. That sounds nice. super cool. I did yes. actually, I will admit, go through and read Alex's. So you should tell us about your... You didn't have enough to read, so you read mine as well. I see how it no, is. I went and I, I went and read both of your, like, a couple of the ones that you, you particularly enjoyed. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Uh, so I, if I had had one more story, I could have made a set of three built around a theme of the sea. <laughs> uh, because I... Uh, had in my set and really, really loved uh, Marissa Lingen's wonderful Wrap Me in the Ocean Wide and uh, Jordan Carella's story about the sea and also eating men alive. Um, Great. <laughs> huge mood. Uh, the Wind Whispered Secrets to the Sea. Both of them are excellent and I really enjoyed them. But I thought needed one more. Also, yeah. the thing that got to me from Wrap Me in the Ocean Wide was this theme of pollution. Mm -hmm. um, which I also saw reflected in the one that I saw. Um, the Road, the road. Right? Yeah, Road, yep. a fairy tale. But there yep. was also somewhat sequestration, vitrification touched on that. Um, so I think that's something that I noticed a little bit. Reading this many of one magazine's stories in fairly short order, you get a little bit of a feel for what they were buying at that time. Um, yeah. And there's this emphasis on the impact we have on the world that I saw in a lot of these stories. Mm, yeah. Which I thought was a really interesting theme. Yeah. Did you want to talk about oracles? Yeah, I actually realized that we have another one for oracles, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, do we? Um, yeah, so who ha who was reading these ones? I had The King's Mirror by M.K. Hutchins. And I think Freya had Cassandra Draw Draws the Four of Cups by Ruthanna Emerson. Yes, that was one of mine. Do you want yep. to, well, what are those two like? What are they about? I didn't read these ones. So The King's Mirror is about a, uh, it's about the Incan Empire, or it's set in the Incan Empire, and it is about a mirror grinder who is attempting to make a mirror perfect enough that the king can use it to see the future. That's cool. Uh, and what, 
yeah, it's pretty cool. But while the the mirror grinder is making this, um, he speaks to the gods, and the gods show him mm. the future, and it's terrible. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil the end for you because it's pretty rad. Cool. And um, yours? Oh yeah, Cassandra draws the Four of Cups is about climate change. Ah, yes. See, <laughs> it's about. See? Yes, I was sort of looking at the notes that I made. I wrote that it's about passive versus active pessimism about the future. (laughs) (laughs) And also lesbians. And also, I mean, that's fair. Uh, Whom amongst us? No, I was thinking that the... the quest for the viper king uh one the hunting yes. the viper king was oh, actually yeah. about that oracles. has oracles yeah yeah, yeah um it was about kind of the if we were talking about it from the perspective of thinking about oracles more specifically i would have talked more about the um juxtaposition of the false oracle who lied to them to set them on the quest and the absolute mm. truth of the viper itself which I thought was super cool. Yes. And then we could have talked about like the symbolism of the tarot card. Mm-hmm. And I would have looked up for you what that particular card. Was it the <laughs> high priestess? Maybe. Right? They just called her the lady because they did. Okay. Yeah. 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 I thought it was the high priestess card. You may but well I could have, have looked yes. that up mm-hmm. and brought that in. I'm sure it's relevant. Yep. <laughs> and I had with within the 10 stories that I read and we – I, I sorted these just on a spreadsheet, essentially. So it was very random mm-hmm. as to who got which. We just made sure that everybody had the same amount of words to read, roughly. Mm-hmm. But all within the 10 that I read was a triptych about magical houses. And we know that uh, I love me love a fucking magical, magical house. So you I was quite happy love about this. Um, so there was What Cradles Us But Will Not Set Us Free by Nin Harris, which I really, really love. This was one of my favorites from the set that I read. It had a very... Um, Zen Cho kind of feel to it, and I love mm. Zen Cho's short stories. And it's about becoming a monster and mm. a magical house that protects monsters, and about transformation and memory. It was gorgeous. Oh, I, I really love loved that, that one. Um, and who has never loved a gentle house by Osahon Izayamu is actually from the point of view of a magical house, uh, which is kind of ambivalently malevolent, like you know, trying to <laughs> it wants some stuff. But it's a house, sure. so there's only so much stuff it can do. Uh, but I, I really like that one as well. And the third one in that set then is called Sublet by Ian Kapos, which is actually about a magical room within someone's apartment, or I think it might be within a townhouse, uh, where if he goes into the room, he can see his friend's deaths. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that one is actually a story, I think, about um, survivor's guilt and social yeah. isolation. But mm-hmm. again, it's using that frame of a house that is in some way a magical or horrifying or other. No, for sure. Well, I think that Freya wins this hand of poker. Yeah. Since she's the only one who put full <laughs> yes, set. Yeah, right? <laughs> I, I've got a three. Anybody else got, anybody else got three? No. <laughs> three of a kind? Three of a kind, no, anyone? <laughs> like, now I'm like pawing back through mine. I'm like, can I do anything with three? I have lots of stuff about that children. <laughs> That's not really a theme though, is it? No. Uh, I could have done death. I, I mean, had a bunch of stuff. There's with, a lot with, of them that are about death. death. <laughs> yeah. I, I I have one story about terrifying clowns. Um, we should stop playing <laughs> poker with these poor people's no. stories. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think we could probably do like a whole fucking royal flush of death, honestly. <laughs> yeah. True, true. Yeah. Where is the lie? <laughs> darling listeners, darling Strange Horizon readers, thank you for sharing these stories with us. Yes. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Indeed. We yes. had a good time reading them and an even better time at pulling them apart for you. Such fun. And also, thank you to Strange Horizons uh, for asking us to be one of your stretch goals. Uh, it was such an honor and we are so glad to have helped out. Yep. Bucket list item. <laughs> We've made it. <laughs> at last. <laughs> We're grown up now. Podcast over. <laughs> we can all go home. We can all go not home. Not really. No. Not, not really. Not we will never be free. Oh, God. everybody thanks for joining us for this episode of be the serpent a podcast of extremely extremely deep literary merit and thank you also to strange horizons for asking us to be one of their kickstarter stretch goals we are delighted and honored to have helped you out please keep up the good work of publishing great short fiction
because this is a bonus episode, I don't really know what the episode before this one was about or what the one coming after will be, but uh, I'm sure it's great. So go check out last week's episode to find out what next week's episode is going to be. And if you have a friend who's into podcasts like this one, give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation on our fan Discord chat, linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon or leaving an iTunes review. And, by the way, speaking of myths, your smile is legendary.